difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. And here again also is Sadat Adlakas. Hello again, Sadat. Hi, thanks for having me. In our last episode, we discussed Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, a crime epic about the Corleone family and the sons who stand to take over the family business when he steps down. There's a similar dynamic at play in the new Sean Durkin film, The Iron Claw, which is about the Von Erich family and the sons vying to take over that business. The Godfather is about gangsters and The Iron Claw is about wrestlers, but somehow... They're both equally dangerous work. Much of the action in the Iron Claw takes place in Texas in the late 70s and 80s, as the Von Erich boys plan to take the wrestling world by storm. The Don Vito of this bunch is Fritz Von Erich, played by Holt McElhaney, a former wrestling heel who still burns from never getting a shot at the World Wrestling Championship belt. And so he turns to his boys to make that dream come true. First up is Kevin Von Erich, played by Zac Efron, who's the most eager of the brothers, but a poor showing in an exhibition against the reigning champion spoils his chances. Fritz then turns to training Carrie, an Olympic-level discus thrower played by Jeremy Allen White, to take a shot, and later cajoles his third favorite son, David, played by Harris Dickinson, before eventually turning to Mike, played by Stanley Simons, who would rather play guitar in a rock band than enter the ring. Terrible things start to happen to the Von Erichs. Or, should I say, terrible things continue to happen to the Von Eriks because their firstborn child drowned at age six. So much tragedy beset the real family that Durkin, for efficiency's sake, cut out a sixth brother altogether. The Iron Claw examines the dreaded Von Erich curse, but finds instead the stresses of a brutal patriarch and a dangerous industry, and a bond between brothers that transcends death. We'll talk about it more after the break. Ever since I was a child, people said my family was cursed. Mom tried to protect us with God. Pop tried to protect us with wrestling. He said if we were the toughest, the strongest, nothing could ever hurt us. I believed him. We all did. Morning. Pants tomorrow, please, David. Harry, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. What do you want in life? Kevin Von Eric. More ribs? <laughs> I want to be with my family. You know, be with my brothers. What do you like to do with your brothers? Together. We can do anything. We're here to restore justice to the wrestling federation that our father built with his own two hands. The hands that were passed down to us. The hands that will deliver the iron claw to you. So what do you think? Like we're alive. I love your family, Kevin. Okay, so the Iron Claw. First question, I'll, I'll go to, to Sadant, who certainly has some thoughts on the Iron Claw. And I, uh, we want to hear them. What did you think? overall of the film uh, The Iron Claw. The Iron Claw is a movie that I like, 
but that I wished I loved. Mm-hmm. It's a good movie that should have been great. And any issues I have with it, I want to say up front, have nothing to do with my being a wrestling fan. That's the first assumption that everyone makes, which is fair, which is fair. The people listening to this they don't have a visual reference for this, but right now Genevieve and Scott can see a shelf full of wrestling action figures in the corner of my screen. Um, so, like I said, that's fair. Who, who do we have up there? Uh, can you say, oh, can you say some of some what we're looking ha- at? Where do you want me to start? Well, uh, <laughs> Cody Rhodes, Chris Jericho, Kazuchika Okada. These are names that you guys, I don't know if you're going to recognize or not. I recognize the first two. Yeah, the, the CM Punk <laughs> is on there twice. Um, I've got a poster there too. Anyway, <laughs> back to business. No, I think it's it's a really captivating film in a lot of its scenes. I think Durkin has an amazing eye for for time and place. And I think there are some specific scenes and shots and aesthetic decisions that he makes that are just fantastic and have lodged themselves in my brain ever since I saw it. It's just, unfortunately, it's one that doesn't fully come together for me. I think that's fair. I mean, that was kind of my response, but I, I'm curious what Genevieve thought. You know, as a not wrestling fan, I'm aware of its work, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, don't have a passionate connection to it by any means. But I was also in the like, not love camp here. So I don't think anyone can uh, can pit that on your fandom, Sadant. But I'm also like admiring of this film in large part for its like physicality and viscerality. And like, it's a film you feel in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm still like think of Zac Efron getting suplexed onto concrete and like shiver a little, <laughs> you know, even just like the first image you see of Kevin, of Zac Efron is Kevin of his just like kind of veiny, muscly, almost uncomfortable looking skin. Like he's that kind of jack that just like looks uncomfortable to even exist in and i think that's a really interesting element of efron's performance here which i I do like quite a bit he's an actor i'm like really hot and cold on but he he really worked for me here you know and it's also just a visceral film and it's like and it's tragedy you know like it's uh, obviously, I cried at this movie. I cry at most movies, <laughs> but like it almost felt like it was being forced out of me at, 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 by, by the end of it. Like it was almost like a resentful cry. But in part, I think that was because I don't have a strong connection to the emotional core of this movie. I don't have brothers. I'm obviously not a brother. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as mentioned, I'm not like deep into wrestling. But, you know, I saw it with my husband who does have brothers and he was just like bawling at this movie. So, like, I definitely see how someone could like connect really emotionally to this movie but i feel like if you don't have that link to its like the its core it's maybe going to feel a little forced it it did feel a little forced for me but you know i still cried it's a very sad movie in that um (laughs) i do i do want i do want to talk about one particular uh scene regarding that toward the end but scott first i want to hear what you thought I'm right there with the two of you and, and thinking it is a good film and not a great one. It has like the texture of a great film, which is frustrating mm-hmm. because it because it does it does have sequences and in, in, in details and it, it, it's you know that are so exciting. I mean that like the the Tom Sawyer sequence is like so freaking mm-hmm. just so amped and, <laughs> and 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 of course that that fight that you mentioned with Kevin, you know, that, that's such a consequential fight that he, that he just 
can't quite get through in a, in a way that kind of ruins his chances. And, and you, you certainly feel for him in so many ways in that scene. I think my overall issue ends up being something that Dirk had ha- just, ha- you know, it's a challenge that I, I, is unenviable, which is that th- this is a real story and he's got to find a way to make it flow and to make it work. And, you know, of course he had to cut out the terrible fate of, uh, he had to cut a whole, a whole brother uh, There's uh, to try to limit what, what is already a tremendous series of tragedies. And, and I think you can see just like how hard it is to make every character and every piece of misfortune register with quite the force that you want it to it, it weirdly enough as long as this film it is it feels truncated it feels like rushed and a little more surface level than you would want it to be that said performances across the board are very persuasive and moving and i did really connect with how much the film was trying to kind of understand this story not wholly as a tragedy but at least kind of emphasize how close these brothers are to each other and what they meant to each other in this bond i suppose that, that, that that's so transcendent i mean that's kind of the emphasis you get right at the very end of just like this is a brotherhood that is still together on earth and in the heavens just like there's something special about these brothers even if all but one of them have departed far earlier than they they should have so i i had mixed feelings but but it has kind of stuck with me i'm, I'm probably a greater distance away from seeing this film than, than uh <laughs> that certainly genevieve we saw it last night i, I don't know when, yes. when you saw it last sedan but i was uh it's been a been a few weeks uh, since i've seen it but a lot of things still kind of stick in my memory which is uh you know a, a good sign that the that it, at least it's a good film it's just it just doesn't quite i think there's the potential there for greatness and it's just hard to know how that's going to get done in the time frame that he has and in the kind of the lumpiness that just comes with trying to tell a true story it's just very hard to kind of wrangle it into all that you want it to be i think you know i can intellectualize and i can tell you what it's about but i can't feel what it's about to go to the the very basic explanation of script writing by the guys who created South Park, who once famously mm-hmm. said, a good way to tell a story is you write out the beats and you fill the blanks between them with therefore and but. This happens, therefore this happens. But this happens, therefore this happens. Which <laughs> can be easily mapped onto the real story of the Von Erics. There is a causality to all these tragedies and how they inform each other. But the movie version you see is the flip side of that because what the South Park guy said you shouldn't do is this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And The Mm. Iron Claw unfortunately feels exemplary of that kind of story where it's like, you know, bad thing, bad thing, bad thing. And the only thing that seems to connect them is that they are happening to the same family rather than these things leading into each other as they did in real life. Yeah, the choice to tell this story like purely chronologically, on the one hand, like I hate that I'm arguing for a chronological storytelling, which is so often a scourge and, and used like in, in really manipulative and bad ways. But I think in this case, like going so straightforward with it, literally, it ends up feeling like really kind of unbalanced as a film, because I tried to avoid as many specifics as I could about the, the real story going into this. Like I knew that it was a tragedy. I knew there was going to be some death, but I didn't know any specifics 
beyond that because I just kind of wanted to experience it without making any sort of comparisons. I, and so I was sitting there watching. It was like, we're past the halfway point of this movie and nothing really bad has happened yet, <laughs> you know, like, or like the, the tragedy hasn't started coming yet. And then once it does, once the brothers start dying, it does start to feel a little repetitive. And that's not the feeling you want <laughs> with, a, with a story like this, you know, and it's so backloaded. But the other side of that is the first part of the movie does put a lot of time and energy into establishing this brotherly connection, which is kind of the heart of the movie and does pay off in the final moments of the film. So like, I don't want to say it was the wrong choice, but I think it's just kind of an unfortunate maybe marriage of the real story and the way it is being told that it creates this sort of lumpy feeling where you know it maybe lessens the impact of those those tragic moments as they start to arrive and and pile up on one another but i will say i really did like a lot of the brotherly bonding scenes you know i i like the thought and care that was put into establishing this relationship between the brothers. And like I said, it does pay off in the end in that the boat scene, which I think is the only time the film kind of departs from quote unquote reality. And I found it very effective. I, I read in, I think, Vulture's uh, interview with Sean Durkin that like he was pressured to take that out. That was not a <laughs> that was not a beloved scene by test screeners, but he he really wanted to keep it in. And I, I respect that choice because I, I liked it quite a bit. And the scene of Kevin watching his his sons play football. That was a, a beautiful acting moment from from Efron, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, it, uh, yeah, I think what Sedan said really is resonant about the manner in which the story told and the and then this happened and then this happened thing. It does that does have that kind of rhythm and it does end up lessening the impact. I mean, I think there's you know if you if you if there is kind of a, a focal point here, or at least a kind of a villain, it's sort of the long shadow of Fritz, you know, of, of this father mm-hmm. who is ranking his sons and pressuring them to step up i mean know. he is the curse he, yes. he is the von eric he, he, curse. exactly i mean he's at the center of all of this you know toxicity you know and when you start getting funerals it's a, it's like the they're not allowed to cry you know because that's what they can't show emotion and even even though they're crushed i mean and uh it, you know and there's something you know what's fundamentally touching about the movie to me is how the brothers and really cling to each other in the face of that kind of pressure and abuse. You know, and I and I think that's something that um, might be attributable to the characters, the performances. So I kind of wanted to shift to those. I mean, what you mentioned, Genevieve, really liking uh, Ef- Efron's work despite being a little hot and cold on him. I mean, are there any? You know, what kind of stood out to you here about uh, some of the performances? Because there are a lot of a lot of interesting ones here. We have to talk about Jeremy Allen White, you know, yeah. <laughs> like he's our Brando, right? Like that's what he gets compared to, you know, I have to say, like, I don't, he wasn't the standout of this film for me, but he makes a delayed entrance to the story. And when he shows up, it does kind of bring a new energy to the proceedings. And that's partly the character of Carrie and sort of how he throws off the kind of the assumed or he throws off the rankings. And, you know, Jeremy Allen White just has a very distinct screen presence that does make him feel 
like a not exactly a wild card, but he he does have sort of a different energy to, than these like the three brothers were initially introduced to. And you know he's a we see him struggling with addiction and uh, adrenaline and like all this other kind of elements that don't get put on to the other brothers as much. Like I said, he just changes the energy of the film and the dynamic of the brothers in a way that I think the film needs at that kind of midpoint where it starts to feel a little like, okay, where is this going? So I appreciated that, even though it's like not, like I said, the standout performance of the film for me. That is is obviously Efron. I really do love the performances across the board, but the one that stood out the most to me was probably Stanley Simons as uh, oh. Mike. Even though I, I was he, like, where have I seen him before? And I've seen him nowhere before. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he just like seems like he's been on my screen before. Yeah, he's playing, you know, the the runt of the litter, so to speak. Even though, you know, in, in real life, Mike was, you know, pretty big and buff and, you know, wanted to be a wrestler. So this version of Mike in the movie is taking on a lot of physical and emotional qualities of Chris, the brother who's been kind of excised from the movie, who was much smaller and who had a lot of physical issues when it came to not being able to perform in the ring and asthma and brittle bones and all that. So he's, he's sort of an amalgam, but he plays it really well where he's aware of you know the expectations placed upon him obviously because he's grown up in this household none of this is a shock to him but the the more he realizes you know in in silence in some scenes that he is never going to be one of the von erics as they're seen by the public and this is all like after his his surgery and toxic shock syndrome when he you know becomes a little slower both physically and mentally when he sort of realizes that this is never going to be him you know sitting at that mm-hmm. dinner table just the the camera just stays on him and you just see this entire story unfold on his face where he looks around at his brothers you know take take stock of like okay this is who they are but this is who i am and this is who I will always be. And I think it's in that moment that he decides to take his own life, even though it happens a few mm-hmm. scenes later, I believe. Um, and I think it's just an absolutely tragic performance to watch. I think almost the tragedy of that character is so well set up by that scene where the where the brothers kind of go off and watch him do his thing. You know, I mean, there's a, yeah. that's such a freeing moment. And so when he's then kind of like consigned to this role that he does not want to play, that he's uncomfortable and physically unfit for, you, you really can't help but think of, of where he was at, you know, at the, at the beginning of the film where he didn't really seem to have the same kind of pressure put on him. He was not among the uh, the top sons uh, for the job. <laughs> I guess why, you know, I, I do like Jeremy Ellen White a lot in this movie. And I think there's something, when you think about him as being Brando-like, I mean, there is that magnetism and that sort of masculinity, but sensitivity but there's also there's something uniquely self-effacing about Jeremy Allen right as an actor and you see it on the the bear as well where it's just like he's in charge but he's so much inside himself a lot of the time and hmm. and I think that's a lot that's that's reflected well here and I and I and I like one of the you know I, one of the things I like about Efron's performance here too is this in in the film in general is, is how it really gets into granular detail about performance about like performance in the ring and out in in interviews mm-hmm. and him just just missing that just missing that some special something that you know rick flair comes in and just has he's just got it you know he just he, he take, comes up and he takes over and you can just see immediately 
you know, why somebody's a star and why somebody isn't a star. That's interesting. And I, and I kind of want to give a shout out if we're talking about actors to Maura Tierney as the, mm-hmm. as the mother. Cause I, I mean, that again, can, can kind of be a thankless role, et cetera. She's outside the narrative in certain ways, but that character reminded me so much of a, of an aunt that I have <laughs> where it's just like a person who is deeply religious and becomes more so as misfortune besets the family that just the, this, the only solution, the only thing she can do is kind of wall herself off from this family that's falling apart, this marriage that is certainly not making her happy. And then the succession of deaths that is making her reconsider her wardrobe because she's wearing the same dress over and over again. I I have a lot of affection for Maura Tierney in general because I, you know, but, and I know her more as a comedian from news radio, but to kind of see her cast in this role, I think she does really fantastic work in the time that she's given. And maybe this, maybe this is a question for Sadan, who knows his wrestling history certainly more than we do. What, what did you make of the general depiction of the pro wrestling scene? Did it, did it strike you as authentic in certain ways or maybe not in others? I mean, where, where, did, what stood out to you, I guess, about it? Purely from a pro wrestling standpoint, I think it's pretty great. Obviously, what uh, these actors have been trained to do is, you know, not to have full matches at a stretch, but to, in individual shots and scenes, make it look as if they're pro wrestlers. And they do a fantastic job at that. Like, just something as simple as the the amount of airtime that Zac Efron gets when he jumps off the top rope is just spectacular to watch. And the way they, you know, coordinate the, the drop kicks in the ring. They get all the basics right, pretty much, because they had a really great trainer in Chavo Guerrero Jr., who plays... Uh, one of the characters in the film as well, the Sheik, who um, is Kevin Von Erich's first opponent. Uh, Guerrero comes from, you know, a, a long line of wrestlers himself. And so they had all the basics down. And I think they had a lot of... Uh, the, the film gets a lot of the industry stuff right as well as... Or at least when it comes to telling the audience the ins and outs of wrestling. I think the one time I didn't really like what it does is... Wrestling films have a tendency to kind of weirdly just decide on a whim to blur the line between the fiction and reality of wrestling. You know, sometimes they'll just randomly decide to treat it as a real thing as opposed to a performance, even though they've set it up that way. Mm -hmm. The Iron Claw, for the most part, doesn't do that. I think it just gets a little confusing in one scene where, you know, Kevin keeps the Iron Claw on Ric Flair too long and gets disqualified and his father, like, admonishes him for it. But then Ric Flair doesn't he seems to be fine with it and that it just it i couldn't quite tell like wait what what is fritz mad about what if that was the plan to begin with because flair doesn't seem to be mad about anyone going off script so it was just one of those instances where you know wrestling movies tend to take that one specific liberty that really annoys me and a lot of recent ones have done that like cassandro starring gail garcia bernal and even fighting with my family, its entire climax just starts to treat wrestling as if it's like a real fight all of a sudden, despite being about the struggles of being a performer. You know, it transitions from a movie about making art to a movie about a sport all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And The mm-hmm. Iron Claw, for the most part, avoids that, which I'm happy about. 
I'm glad to hear that you were confused by that scene as well, especially like with with the blood. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was like, what's happening here? Like, is he actually harming him? You, you know, like you said, it was unclear where the performance ended there and the reaction from Fritz and like complicated matters even further. And like, and it happens at a point like it's such like a climactic moment kind of of, of the film or of their their arc. And it like ends in a really abrupt, confusing way. Though I, 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 love, I, I do like Ric Flair himself kind of going back and it was, totally, it was like totally, a laugh totally, line. Yeah, I think it is fun. Yeah. You know, like he's up for and like, it. Maybe you know? that was the point. Maybe yeah. it was just like meant like prioritizing the laugh over like whatever this was meant to be to them. But, but just yeah, the way he, but the, but I think it's so crucial the way he carries himself in that moment. Ric Flair, like just like uh, he's a little wild. He's like, sort of up for it. And there's kind of a lightness to him. That he that you know and a, and, a, and a charisma and dexterity etc that is so it contrasts so sharply with the von Erichs who are just so burdened <laughs> all of the time uh, and uh, and <laughs> yeah. I think it kind of comes through in that moment where it's like oh he didn't respond you know, you'd think he'd come he'd come in raging about about this uh, unexpected behavior in the ring and he just doesn't he doesn't have that reaction at all kind of interesting but uh, there's gonna be so much uh, more to talk about very excited to kind of bring this movie into the ring with the Godfather uh, which we will do in <laughs> connections. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And, uh, you know, the big, the big one here, I mean, my, one of the many big ones, it's so interesting <laughs> that uh, uh, how these films sort of end up linking up. But um, the family business piece of this is maybe a good big umbrella topic for us to start with because what we have in both cases here is uh is is a succession scenario in which the sons of a father who is you know in this dangerous business have different are are not necessarily vying to succeed their father like on the show succession where every where, where everybody's engaged in trying to succeed but all kind of get their moments or at least have to be assessed uh for how how they might take over i mean you you think about like you can kind of pair up here people like sunny and kevin are kind of similar in the sense that they they're eager to step up and to take over and be be first then fate makes a different determination in 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 all these cases and, and then people are brought in either reluctantly or you know in the case of poor afraid of not not at all uh so uh so uh, it's but it, but the other piece of it too is that you know we expect the mob business to be uh, a dangerous one we expect of uh, you know violence to, to befall a lot of these characters given the genre but we don't necessarily expect that of wrestling or should we uh, sit am i missing uh, it, it, the von Eric case is is somewhat unique or is this or, or is there a pretty long history I'm, uh, that i'm mi- missing of just a of this just straight up being an, an incredibly dangerous thing to do for a living traditionally yes so because of you know historically a lot of steroid use and drug use and just getting your body and your head messed up that was for a long time you just wouldn't expect wrestlers to live a very long life you know things have changed now standards have changed safety has changed but uh, traditionally speaking you're you're not wrong and yeah, this is a 
family business with a short life expectancy as well. Uh, with the Von Erichs, it was just a matter of like, their, their story is as famous as it is because of the number of tragedies that piled up. Even more so than you see in the movie, you know, not even counting the brother that was left out, Chris. So that's why their story tends to stand out as, you know, possibly the most tragic wrestling story. But but even apart from that, the, the family business aspect of it is also very intrinsically a wrestling thing. You know, you look at the WWE, which is, you know, a huge corporation now, but it was once essentially a family business. Uh, Vince McMahon, who until recently had been running it for decades, took it over from his father, who was a wrestling promoter. And uh, a, a lot of wrestling promoters, you know, it, it was a very insular industry to begin with. You couldn't really bring outsiders into it because of sort of the the secrecy around it and like the, the kind of carny nature of it. But yeah, and that's another reason that, you know, much like the mob, it makes for such fertile dramatic ground because you do have these blurred lines between the personal and the professional to the point where you know in wrestling like there is basically no separation between them the iron claw is i, I think uh distinct from the godfather in the sense in sort of the i guess the motivations of the the patriarch of these family businesses and bringing mm. his uh sons into it like to my recollection we don't really get anything from Vito specifically like about his quote-unquote legacy as it pertains to the family but it's it's very matter of fact it's like this this is going to continue on because it has to keep continuing on like this this is just how how things are whereas Fritz is coming at this from a place of wanting that championship that he never got like he is trying to fill a hole <laughs> you know uh, in his own like heart in his own career and he's using his sons as a means of, of doing that and that makes it feel much more insidious than Vito bringing his sons in, into the fold and and as we've said like he doesn't want or expect Michael to join the family business it's only by a you know progression of circumstances whereas you know not being part of the family business in the Iron Claw, you know, that that gets you at the bottom of the rankings. You know, there's the the, the patriarchs that are kind of like pushing this on their their sons are coming at it from different positions. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to, uh, I mean, there's a lot of variance among the among the Von Derricks, at least as depicted in the movie, as to their individual ambition and desire to kind of be a part of this. I mean, it, it certainly makes it seem like Carrie is kind of excited to take his part when that option becomes available but it but it becomes available again in the film's depiction because you know his olympic dream is dashed by the uh boycotting of the 80 games and and now it's now all that athleticism that he's built up can has to be parlayed into something else and and he goes through it willingly but but it's interesting how there's no change of course with don vito corleone it's like the corleone family is immense it's an immense enterprise business mm -hmm. with many tentacles and many employees. And, you know, there would be at any point Fritz von Erich could have pulled the plug on, on this whole operation of could it be like, I can't handle this anymore. This is not, this family can't absorb any of this pain any longer. And, and that point, <laughs> it just never happens. It's just, it's just terrible thing after terrible thing happens. So it's kind of an interesting contrast, but it is, it is fascinating to think about progressing as a family business and as a family business that, that is on this level of danger, which is kind of why, why you know, when I saw this, uh, the Iron Claw, the Godfather just immediately kind of came to mind. 
There's also in talking about the family business, we're talking, there's the family industry and then the actual family business, you know, and the godfather, like the industry is the mafia and the family business is the Corleone family specifically. But as we obviously see, there are other families. And in the Iron Claw, like wrestling is the family industry, but there is specifically this promotion, the WCCW that that Fritz runs and eventually ends up handing down to Kevin, who who sells it by uh, mm-hmm. the film's end. Uh, and I don't know how accurate that is. I assume it is. But, th- but it is interesting that like the film ends with, in a way, the family business being shut down. Of course, in reality, like the Von Erichs continue to be a presence in wrestling as the titles at the end tell us but the actual the business of the wccw is no longer in the family's hands by the end i'd have to look into the specifics of the wccw shutting down that's that's one aspect of the real story that i'm actually not familiar with but for what it's worth kevin's sons ross and marshall von eric did just make their uh big tv debut a couple of weeks ago oh yeah wow and kevin was part of their match as well Oh my God! Uh, Wait, like he performed, in, uh, like he actually wrestled, or he came out he towards like- the very end. It's sort of like a hype man, like a special appearance. It was, it was a show in okay. Dallas, um, and uh, a lot of the match was built around Kevin's sons trying to get their opponents with the Iron Claw, the move, oh, but being thwarted. Wow! And then afterwards, <laughs> uh, when they were getting their asses kicked by the heels, Kevin himself came out. And uh, put the iron claw on the bad guys, and it was like a huge payoff to like the whole match. <laughs> wow! Yeah, wow. That's. Are we sure that wasn't stealth promotion for this movie? Oh, it absolutely was. No, no, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. completely tied into like. Look, okay. this is this is wrestling at the end of the day, where <laughs> right, right, where the, the most underhanded tactics are just you know it's just another day at the office. Um. So yeah, no, it, it was it was completely tied into the movie. But it was also a nice moment. Sounds better than the Wonka menu again. Like the uh, <laughs> as, a, as a promotion, as a promotion, I'm I'm much more into that idea of of seeing this drama unfold. I mean, I guess uh, what you know the other thing, and this this speaks more to the Iron Claw potentially than the Godfather, but it speaks to both. Is this idea of toxic masculinity of of that being something that is inherited and passed down to these sons and something they have to grapple with and in and often you know well certainly this iron clock you know ends up killing them is that how do you see i guess that that theme kind of resonating in both of these movies in the iron claw i do see the movie at least attempting to frame these macho and masculine expectations as the source of the von Erich curse in a way and um, i know genevieve mentioned earlier that you know fritz himself is the curse even though the real story of the curse is much more winding and complicated and has uh, a lot of Nazi connections, which the movie does not touch on whatsoever. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the curse, uh, as it stands in the movie, is the rigid masculine expectations uh, when it comes to fatherhood, when it comes to wrestling. And weirdly enough, I think Don Vito is probably a marginally better father than Fritz. Because he tries on some level almost to break that cycle by not having Michael join the family business, even though that's what eventually happens. But there is a hint of, you know, him recognizing that there is an escape, recognizing Mm -hmm. that there is a different path or a better path. 
So yeah, when it comes to dad rankings, sorry, Fritz, but <laughs> yeah. The Godfather has you beat. Well, I mean, consider, I mean, if you consider, if we look forward, if we look again toward The Godfather Part 2 and, and Don Vito's story there, it kind of explains his motives in a way. It's not really about a desire for glory in the in the way it is for fritz it's just like it's a necessity it's like what do i do you know i've got a i'm poor and have a, this family to take care of and like i you know i've got to you know fight in a pretty literal way for my stake in this country and it's that's a much different thing because it's because because the stake in the country you know uh, establishing yourself as an american that can take a, a lot of different forms that's not just being a gangster that that could be raising children who can do something different than what you're you're doing and so and so you know i, I think there's some acceptance on the, on don vito's part that someone like sunny is going to come in and take over and who the hell knows how that's going to go but with michael especially it's like i don't he doesn't want that at all you know and you get none of that from the von erics like you know even you know poor mike who just <laughs> you in this film's telling it just you know, just has no stomach for what he's being asked to do is kind of forced shoehorned into his father's uh, dream. And there's that really interesting family dinner scene in Iron Claw where Doris reveals that Fritz was a musician before, you know, he, he chose sport, as he says it, but there is sort of this positioning of music as you know, the realm of the of the sensitive is sort of a the non toxic sign of the side of the masculinity coin that is embodied in, in Mike in the film. But then we get this hint that you know there is a a family lineage there as well that Fritz made an effort to turn away from. I thought that was a, an interesting little detail to bring into it. This is also maybe a good sort of pivot point into another connection I wanted to talk about, which is the uh, depiction of, of wives and mothers in, in these movies. And I kind of wanted to talk about Doris in kind of in relation to the idea of toxic masculinity and the ways that it has kind of shaped her interactions with her, her sons and her husband and you know, she's a really interesting twist on the, you know, beleaguered wife character because she, we see her multiple times sort of opting out of helping her sons, you know, like she multiple times, you know, she's says some degree of like, that's between you and your brothers, or it's in God's hands. Like she doesn't assume any power in these relationships to, to sort of fix what's happening to her family. And it's, hard to blame her for that, seeing what kind of man uh, Fritz is. But it's also an interesting kind of wrinkle to your sympathies with that character. For me, especially, it was interesting to see how she like kind of offloaded the morality of the situation to God and religion and, and kind of like kept her hands out of it, um, which kind of feels related to the way that Don Vito's wife is barely a character. Like her name is basically a trivia point. It's Carmela. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, she, she, she doesn't have really any involvement with, with the family business. She's very much on the outside. But we don't really get any sort of information about whether that's by choice or not. So, it's interesting that, to me that Doris is like more active in her inaction. But then you have Lily James' character, Pam, who is very active and is, you know, arguably sort of what keeps Kevin from succumbing to the curse in a lot of ways. Like she is involved in a way that Doris is pointedly not. It makes an effort not to be. And so they're kind of very interesting 
two sides of the supportive wife coin here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting point. I You do kind of imagine what Don Vito's wife might be like and, and uh, you know, whether, I mean, she's clearly outside of, in the very first sequence, she's outside of the business in a very literal way. Well, and of course, Kay. And Kay, right. Yeah. But I mean, like, like she has knowledge of the business. But I think there's also a kind of a mm-hmm. thing with, with Kay where she's interested, like she's morally engaged. Yeah, a, a, and that makes it a troubling situation for Michael. I, I, I think with, I think you can maybe safely say that Don Vito's wife has has come to terms in some way with what uh, her husband comes does for a living, which might connect her more with Doris in a sense that they both have that capacity to kind of wall themselves off in denial, in denial yeah. of of the business, and in, in, in Don Vito's wife's case, in denial of just the unending tragedies <laughs> that that beset the von Erich and, and Doris Doris's case. So that so um there's kind of a rhyme between those two women and maybe a certain amount of, of rhyming between Kay and Lily James's character. Yeah. But you know, Lily James has a man who's willing to listen to her and mm-hmm. wants maybe can be steered away and, and, and be shown a different kind of a life and Michael is not in a, a position or a mood or anything to be shaken into a different path, right? His wife, his, his sense of responsibility, or however you want to put it, has made it to where he he's just going to, you know, quite literally, you know, shut the door on her at the end of the movie. Yeah, I like Pam Lily James's character as sort of a, you know, an embodiment of emotional intelligence. Like like her her first scene is, you know, didn't anyone teach you how to ask questions? <laughs> like like literally teaching him how to express emotion and interest in other people in a way that his family has just never given him. And Kay doesn't have quite the same impact on Michael. She is kind of much more around as a as a narrative device, you know, and, and kind of as a, like I said in the first half, sort of a, a sounding board off of which we can learn more about the family, uh, about Michael and the family business, and sort of underline the tragedy of Michael succumbing to this new role. But she isn't necessarily active in Michael's development as a character the way that Pam is. So we talked a lot about in the the first part about the relationship between you know the Godfather and and the sort of broader American culture and I, I, ideals and and I was curious to given your again wrestling expertise far beyond far beyond what we have here on this program if you had any further thoughts I suppose on how the Iron Claw deals with its world the wrestling world. Yeah, I mean, to begin with, wrestling is already probably the art form that is most representative of a specific aspect of America and American culture, and that is, you know, capitalism and the the idea of, like, the American hustle. And that's because when it comes to wrestling, they even, you know, say it in the Iron Claw, it's, all, it's like a job promotion. As much as these things are narratives, as much as, you know, who becomes the next champion is a story, it's also a job promotion. And everything about wrestling is sort of intrinsically woven with the idea of economics and money. When you're pretending to be in pain in the ring, that's called selling. The, you know, oftentimes the the promotions and, you know, who's the next champion and who gets the most attention depends on who's selling the most merchandise. A lot of times, stories will follow not what is most emotionally resonant, but what will sell the most tickets. You know, there's it's, it's become a very common saying, what's best for business? So to begin with, wrestling is already a fertile ground for something like that. And again, in the Iron Claw, like I said, Kevin 
lays it out in very explicit terms that, you know, as much as this is an art form or a sport or a hybrid of the two, it is a job. It is all about, you know, proving yourself within an industry and rising through those ranks and earning more money and doing the things you need to do to keep your business afloat. Because, you know, the if the American dream is making it uh, and making it monetarily, then the brothers in the Iron Claw are not just, you know, struggling to be seen and heard, but they are struggling to make it as businessmen as much as they're struggling to make it as artists. Yeah. It's interesting to think about these as two stories of about, quote unquote, the American dream sort of one of the core tenets of the American dream being like making life better for the next generation, for the generation that comes after you, putting in the work to make things better for your children. And in both of these cases, they're kind of failures <laughs> that in the Iron Claw, very, very literally. Uh, so, I mean, I guess maybe Kevin comes out of it okay, but certainly it's not uh, any credit to Fritz that that he does, you know, and... Michael, I guess we have to discuss two more movies to discuss the extent of uh, of how the American dream fails him. But you know, it's it's certainly not the uh, the direct upward trajectory for the Corleone family. No, I, I'm just I, I'm thinking about that about the business aspect of it. And this is the Iron Claw in the way it's depicted in the movie. I, I just you know the the biggest hook to me is when the three of them are all are wrestling together as like a tag team i mean that like that's a kind of a mm-hmm. thrilling short montage but it's like isn't that the biggest if you're talking about like a storyline that's going to sell isn't that the one that does it i mean rather than just kind of like one von eric after another taking their shot like if you're talking about a story it's like the story that all of these guys are brothers and all of them can can work in in this sort of choreographed unison there's that's a hook you know and i you know i don't know i'm just you know this is the context of the movie i don't know the movie kind of makes it seem like okay it's just this guy's turn and this guy's turn but you get that little glimpse of just like wow that that works like that tag team situation kind of plays so we've made our way through a lot of connections here, and this is traditionally the point where we kind of like pick up the the small ones at the end. Uh, so I'm going to uh, just uh, point out that uh, both of these films have sort of uh, pivotal uh, scenes set at a wedding or sequences, I guess, just multiple scenes. But they happen at different points in the movie, but they kind of have a similar effect in sort of being, I I don't want to call it like a hangout moment, but both weddings contain lots of nice moments with the family that kind of lets you relate to these people as a family and not as wrestlers or criminals as uh, the case may be. You know, it's a venue for kind of setting up some, you know, subtle relationship dynamics that aren't necessarily it's a venue for setting up some good character dynamics and also just like fun scenes to be in. Like, I love that we got to see Zac Efron dance. This is really just a, whole, a way for me to, to say that I really like the line dancing. And I, and I like that we got like this other bit of physicality from Zac Efron, who is a very physical actor and, and can obviously dance. And so it was like a nice little way to work in another kind of facet of his performance here. But also it is a big turning point in the film. It's uh, the scene with David in, in the bathroom and he's, you know, it's sort of foreshadowing. It's, it's the last like p- kind of happy moment for this family before things go completely off the rails. And you could say something similar about the, the wedding scene in, in The Godfather too. 
So this is obviously not unique to these two films. Weddings are a, a very uh, common thing uh, in, in movies. Uh, you can do a lot at, at, at a wedding, but in I think both in both of these movies, they stand out. Yeah, the wedding scenes have good vibes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I also think they they make for interesting opposites to each other as well. Um, because in, you know, in The Godfather, the wedding serves as this big, crowded, public face of the Corleone family while, you know, all these shady deals are going on in a darkened room elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the case of the Von Erics, the wedding scene kind of represents, you know, who they truly are behind the scenes. And it's mm-hmm. a very sparse wedding, and which I found yeah. interesting because even though they're all local celebrities, it's like they are loved but not truly known. And there's something almost tragic about that too. But you're right, it is the last happy moment that they have together. And there's no sense of irony about it except in retrospect. And even the way mm-hmm. it's presented aesthetically, like you you do have this wide shot of all of them dancing, which is so joyful to watch. But when Durkin moves into their close-ups, he doesn't isolate them. And that's what a close-up mm-hmm. generally does. It isolates a character, but he presents their close-ups in one like unbroken, you know, lateral track where he's sort of like connecting their joy to each other. And I think it's mm-hmm. just such an incredible and beautiful moment and just everything about it, the decisions that Durkin makes as a filmmaker, I think just make me wish like the rest of the movie was that good. Yeah, it, it's it's a torment when you can see you see the greatness that you know so many moments of of greatness in the movie just isn't where you know you you wish it could be based on those kind of isolated moments and the wedding scene in uh the iron claws definitely one of those scenes and i think it kind of is really what the core of what the movie's trying to express which is this that really powerful f- bond between these between uh these brothers it just gets to to be shown in such a joyful way in that in that moment and it just throws the entire rest of the movie in pretty sharp relief so, so Don, you had a little bit of uh, trivia, I suppose, that you wanted to uh, send us out with, out with here? Yeah, coming into this, I actually had in mind uh, one interesting connection, that if if there were one person, one human being who could best represent the overlap between these two movies and the subject matter, it would be Lenny Montana, the actor who plays Luca Brazzi in The Godfather, because uh, in real life, he worked as an enforcer for the Colombo crime family, uh, but he was also a professional wrestler. Really? And yes, uh, and this I, this I kind of already knew, but I did a little digging, and I actually found at least one instance in a tag team match in Ontario in 1958, where Lenny Montana fought Fritz von Erich. No. Wonderful. I love that. <laughs> Is there any visual evidence of it that you could find, or none that I could find? uh, Unfortunately, yeah. Oh man, that's that is that's good stuff. Can't beat that. This is why we bring on guests. Um, So, (laughs) the 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 Godfather is currently streaming on Showtime and is available in every possible format on every digital rental service. Uh, The Iron Claw is currently in theaters. We'll be back with your next picture show.
Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, I'm going to throw to myself on this one. Uh, I think we can talk about uh, talk about some wrestling films that are quite interesting. The Wrestler, the 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 um, Darren Aronofsky film, or uh, Beyond the Mat. I mean, there's there's plenty of others. I wanted to kind of go with a little something a little bit more obscure i wanted to talk about a film called fake it so real by robert green uh, this is a film that he made in 2011 robert uh has become pretty well known of late for uh films like actress uh kate plays christine bisbee 17 and procession films that kind of have that art that wrestling like art of uh mixing you know uh, blurring the line between what is what is real and what is what is performance the performance generally is a as something of profound interest to robert green's movies and uh fake it so real is a really beautifully textured movie about a very marginal independent pro wrestling outfit in lincolnton north carolina and it just follows this uh these characters uh, in the lead up to this big show. And it's a film that, that uh, you know, it, 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 we talk about with the, the Iron Claw, the sort of hardships and difficulties associated with that life. But when it's on a really small level, as it is in Fake It So Real, uh, you're dealing with tremendous amount of passion from these men, but also a tremendous amount of sacrifice uh, in terms of money uh, in terms of health so the, the stakes are really high and and fake it so real again it's it's it, it, it kind of figures into green's later work and that it is about performance uh it's got it's got a you know a, a real grit to it and, and kind of covers the sport so far into the in, into the margins that that um i think it's very very interesting um that you know you know because you know just like anything else any other sport you know we tend to follow the pros we tend to you know we, we see uh what happens under the in the big lights you know and, and so to kind of get you know a documentary that is that is interested in people who are passionate you know in such a small place uh in such a tiny promotion very exciting to watch i think it's a real if you have canopy or or, or movie or or fandor it's it's available there and then then you can get it on all the usual services as well so uh i would recommend that is there any uh Sedan, is there any uh wrestling films things that we haven't brought up that that uh, come to mind that you that you you uh, like that people should see yeah, um, well, you mentioned, you know, The Wrestler by Aronofsky, of course, which I think pairs really well with uh, his other movie, Black Swan, because, you know, as much as we might call wrestling a sport, I do think at the end of the day, it's it's a performance art, uh, much like ballet. But the, the one thing that I wanted to recommend was actually, uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and recommend an episode of television. <laughs> this long running... We'll allow it. Yeah, this um, <laughs> now, I believe, four season uh, documentary series on Vice called Dark Side of the Ring, specifically mm. the episode The Last of the Von Erichs, which, you know, covers um, the real story of the Von Erichs in detail. And it's also just an incredibly well-narrated and well-put-together show in the way it, you know, evokes iconography and memory. But also what The Last of the Von Erichs does is it tells the complete story of the Von Erichs in about, you know, 40-something minutes in a really satisfying and 
an honestly depressing way because you know, mm-hmm. just, that's just the nature of the story. But yeah, if you want to know more about the real Von Erich story, that's probably the best place to get it from. That's cool. Give us the name of that uh, series again. Dark Side of the Ring. It is available on Hulu and Vice. Ooh, yeah, I'm excited. Yes. I will check that out. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Genevieve, do you want to tell us about those episodes? In Jake Johnson's first film as a writer and director, the star of Minx and the New Girl plays a Los Angelino who's been stuck in a rut since breaking up with his longtime girlfriend. But he's drawn out of his depressing routine when he agrees to participate in a dark web reality show that will make him the prey of hunters determined to kill him within a 30-day limit. It's a dangerous game. One might even call it the most dangerous game. And yet we're not pairing it with that movie. Instead, we've chosen The Tenth Victim, an Italian cult classic from the 1960s directed by Elio Petri in which Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andress play contestants in a deadly government-sanctioned competition that makes some hunters and some victims. We hope you'll join us if we survive the experience. For now, we welcome your feedback on The Godfather and the Iron Claw and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve, let's start with you. Oh, I'm still thinking really hard about what my first Blue Sky post is going to be. Uh, but when I'm not doing that, I am uh, the TV editor at Vulture, uh, where I occasionally get the pleasure of editing Sedant, but he uh, is many other places. So why don't you tell us where we can find you? So like Genevieve said, I occasionally write for Vulture. Uh, I freelance at a whole bunch of other different places as well. Uh, IGN, Mashable, Variety, Joy Sauce, Truth Take, IndieWire. And um, against uh, my and everyone's better judgment, I'm still on Twitter. You can find me at at Siddhant Adlaka, where um, I tend to post all of my work if you'd like to see it in one place. Scott, where can we find you? Uh, so, yeah, I, I do uh, still post to Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I do occasionally post, post to Blue Sky at, at Scott Tobias with no underscore. Uh, and I don't post yet at TikTok, but I have an account still. <laughs> at clout chaser 666 <laughs> uh, eventually i'll get i'll get around it i'll get around i try to come up with what a, a like a concept some some like just can't miss video concept and i i feel like my what what i have currently is like maybe like between intervals on the peloton i'll review films like just be like just out of breath <laughs> reviewing films like maybe that's what the kids want uh that's the only thing i can think of anyway uh, i'm just pitching this right here out in the open um you can find my work at uh at uh at the new york times at uh at vulture at guardian other fine publications my main gig uh though is the reveal uh the newsletter uh that i write with uh our absent co-host keith phipps uh and you can and that's uh, the reveal.substack.com and and uh, we just posted our big year-end piece and by the time uh this airs uh we're gonna have a sight and sound discussion about a matter of life and death and which we had done here on the next picture show and then also uh an interview i'm doing with uh, john sales about uh lone star so i'm pretty stoked about that keith our absent co-host is uh k phipps 3000 on blue sky i think he's pieced out of x uh but he is he's uh at the reveal with me and um and you can find him at vulture and tv guide and and uh gq and a bunch of other places and tasha is the uh, film editor for 
polygon.com. Uh, so uh, you can find her doing lots of work there, including seeing the Book of Clarence, which is <laughs> she's seeing. Uh, <laughs> why she's tonight. not here tonight. <laughs> this is why she's not here tonight because uh, she's seeing uh, the uh, surely terrific January entertainment uh, that is uh, the, the Book of Clarence. <laughs> uh, stay updated on the next picture show at nextpictureshow.net and on Blue Sky at ne the next picture show. Uh, get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Sadant, our co-host, uh, for filling in and doing such an amazing job and giving us incredible trivia about uh, <laughs> uh, Luca Brazzi. Um, he is giving this a thumbs up emoji um, that is uh, coming through on the Zoom, which in a magical way. Um, uh, hopefully we can have uh, you back on the show soon. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm -hmm.